me um, begin this morning with words of what I think are a well-known hymn, a well-known uh, item of praise. You see if you know these words. Uh, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilt. They lose all their guilty stains. Do we know the words of that hymn? I wonder, actually, have you ever considered at any great length the words of that hymn? Or, indeed, to be more specific, have you ever considered just how strange the words of that hymn must appear to a newcomer to Christianity? Have you ever thought about that for any length of time? Let's say somebody comes into a Christian church for the very first time ever. They come in and they're trying to do what everybody else is doing. And so they find themselves standing to sing, which in the modern world is strange in itself. But what is this? They begin to find themselves singing about a cascading fountain of blood. Okay, now to any newcomer to Christianity, that would be strange, right? Wouldn't that be an unusual thing? Yet... We do this in the Christian church unapologetically. Am I right? Like we know that a central motif of Christianity is blood, blood. We sing about blood happily, don't we? We know the focal point of Christianity is a cross where blood was shed. And what are we going to do later on in the service if we're a child of God? We're even going to, dare I say it, we're going to drink Blood in a sense, in a spiritual sense, are we? Blood is central. That raises the question, of course, doesn't it? Why? Why? I mean, it seems so odd to society, odd to the world. What is it that is so special about the spilt blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, um, in the New Testament, you know as well as I do, don't you, that the Holy Spirit makes a number of very specific statements about the efficacy, the benefits of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in our time together this morning, what I want you and I to do is just to look to one of those statements that God makes about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think before we get into this, since we're not looking at this as part of a sermon series, you kind of know what I've got to do, don't you? You know, like I've got to say something, at least about the context or the setting of this, don't I? And so do you know what I could do? I could do what ministers love to do, and I could tell you stuff you already know. <laughs> Ministers love to do that, don't we? We tell you stuff you already know. And I could do that here, couldn't I? I could tell you about Ephesians. I could tell you stuff you already know. It's a letter, you know, and it's written by the Apostle Paul, and it's written to this church in Ephesus in the first century, and it's a letter that's to be spread around the churches Asia Minor. I could tell you all of the stuff you already know and go down that route. Instead, I want you, I want you to think about, is just how this section sits in its more immediate context. Because I'm guessing in our church, and there's some visitors here, of course, and we're just delighted to see you, but I'm guessing in a church like ours, we're pretty familiar, are we, with the section that precedes the one that we're looking at? Are we familiar with Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, that great section about God's saving work? I think we know that really well. So I ask you, do you see how our section, verses 11 to 13, Can you work out how that sits alongside the previous section? Can you work it out? See it where in that previous section, what Paul does is shows us how individual salvation comes about through grace and grace alone. 
what does he do in our section? He speaks about our new status. Like what Paul does in our section here, he shows us that Christ's saving work doesn't just result in new life. Praise God that it does. But Christ's blood, Christ's work doesn't just result in new life. It actually results in a new standing for the Christian and a new standing before the Almighty God. And you got to believe me when I say this. That this morning as we turn away from everything else and we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, do you know what I think we're going to see in Ephesians? I think we're going to see great reason that we have today as a Christian church, even in an age of coronavirus and COVID-19, we're going to see here the reason we have to sing. We've got reason to sing with joy. And we're going to see here the reason we have to sing with joy about even blood. So, I need to ask you, I need to make sure that everyone is on literally the same page as me. So can I ask you to please make sure you've got the Bible open? Do you? Let's turn to Ephesians 2, especially verses 12 and 13. Let's have that in front of us. As we think about the first thing here, we're going to spend, I'll be up front with you, we're going to spend most of our time in this first heading. And so the first thing that I think Paul exhorts us to do, implores us to do is this. Listen carefully. We're told here to recall our past deprivation. Has everyone got it? We're pushed here by Paul, by the Holy Spirit, to recall our past deprivation. Okay. Now, I think I'm right in saying, aren't I, that human beings have an incredible capacity to forget terrible things that happen in their past. Isn't that right? That human beings, we have this capacity, amazing capacity really, to, to be able to block out and shut out trauma and terrible things that have happened in years ago. I um, once knew a lassie, a, a girl in Scotland, who had spent some time in her youth uh, when she was homeless. Now, this was through no fault of her own that she was homeless. It had been a family problem and basically left her for a short period of time without fixed abodes. And it was always really interesting to try and speak to her about that because you would ask her about it and she would want that. You'd ask her about it. But do you know what happened? She had to work really, really hard to remember like, you see the idea that she had shut out so much of the trauma of that? It so affected her. She had blotted out that she had to put a load of effort in just to remember what that was like. Now, you see that idea? I think that is very much what Paul is encouraging the Christian to do in this section of Scripture here. That in order for you and for me to begin to appreciate the majesty of the gospel, like the of the gospel. Here, Paul is pushing us to remember the bad stuff. Here, to put time into remembering our past poverty and deprivation. And I, I hope, really, that maybe some of you like jigsaws. I do. Because as, pa- as Paul here pushes you to recall the past and what we were outside of Christ. Do you know what he does? He gives you five pieces of a jigsaw that we're to put together, okay? Five elements. So do we understand what we're doing here? Paul's pushing us to remember what you were apart from God, what you are apart from Christ Jesus. And the kids, you, I should maybe made worksheets for everyone, but the kids have got five spaces to fill in. So I will fire through these pieces of the jigsaw that make up uh, the picture of our past spiritual poverty. You'll stick with me through these, I'm sure. The first is this. Listen, we were away 
from Jesus. Look with me to verse 12. Look at verse 12. Look what Paul says here. He says, remember that you were at that time. Now look at the next phrase. You were at that time separated from Christ. Now if if you're a believer, if you're a Christian in here right now, you're with me right immediately when I say those are just the most terrible words that you could ever hear to think, separate from Christ Jesus. But what I want you to understand is the disagreement that exists about that phrase. You see, lots and lots of people, they read this and they think this. They think that this is just about an absence of messianic hope. Maybe you follow it. Do you follow it? Like, think about it. Paul here is writing primarily to Gentiles at this point, Gentile Christians. So do you see how some people are understanding that? As though Paul is saying to the Gentiles, remember what you once were. You weren't a Jew. Like, you, you remember what you once were. You, you were a Gentile, and so therefore you were separate from Christ. You were separate from a messianic expectation. You were a Gentile. You didn't have any hope of a coming Savior, of a coming Lord, a coming Christ. Did you see the answer? Now, 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 that's fine. There's an element of truth, but surely, Christian friend, you see that there's more there than that. Because I ask you, what was the, oh, the true spiritual reality for those Gentiles? In fact, let me bring it to your life, to you. What was the true spiritual reality in your life before God worked by grace? Do you not see Christian friend, you were at that time utterly, properly, spiritually separate from the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that an awful thing to consider? You had no share in Jesus, no share in the blessings he brings. You had no part in his, his righteous work, no part in the atonement for your sin, nothing to do with no part in that relationship with God that only the Lord Jesus could bring about. If you just pause on that for a, a moment, everything becomes, gets into perspective. What a fearful thought that is. Separate from Christ, away from Jesus. Then do you know what we have to do? We have to put a second piece of the jigsaw into place. Because friends, what were we? We were also, listen, we were apart from the church. Would you read on with me in verse 12? Surely hugs at our heartstrings, doesn't it? Paul says, remember at that time you were separated from Christ. And then he says, you were also alienated from what? From the commonwealth of Israel. And I, I wonder if you see how really ingenious and how clever Paul is being there. Like you just need to think about the, the context for a moment. Who's he writing to? He's writing to Ephesus at a time of Roman rule, isn't he? Like a time when, right into these people, a time when to be part of the commonwealth of Rome, to be a Roman citizen, that was everything to so many people. And do you see how Paul is using that? Like right into Ephesus saying, you're all worried about being part of the Roman commonwealth. Do you not see? I mean, do you not see what you once were? You are no part of the commonwealth of glory. You were not a citizen of heaven above. You were not part of God's very empire, God's household. And again, Christian friend, I think that is important for you to consider and for me to consider this morning. Because you know as well as I do, right? What a pain in the neck the church can be. Don't you? I think we all know 
how difficult it is and how it tries our patience to be part of a congregation like this. And we have to forgive each other and we have to be patient with each other, not hold bitterness in our heart. It's a pain in the neck. And I, 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 I ask you just for a moment to consider the alternative and consider what we once were. You had no part in this. We had no part in the body of Christ apart from God's saving work and saving grace. I mean, you think about it. No brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. No family. No one over us in the Lord. Not dwelling in the city of God. Not being living stones. Being built up into the temple to house the glory of God. Isn't it an awful thing for us to consider? Then thirdly, if you notice the third piece of the jigsaw, we see that we were also aliens to promise. And here I am hopeful, okay? I'm very hopeful that in a church like ours, with our theological uh, understanding, let's put it like that, I'm very hopeful that we will not be as confused as uh, some other people are by what Paul goes on to say. Because look at what he goes on to say. He says at that time, we were also, do you notice the words? We were also strangers to the covenants of promise. You've got to understand, if you read authors and commentators from other theological persuasions, you've got to understand how bamboozled they are by what Paul says there. That why plural, and what does a covenant have to do with a promise? And I'm hoping, really I'm hoping, then here we understand, we grasp something of covenant theology. We know what God has done, do we? We know that in Genesis, God has set forth for us his beautiful overarching covenant of grace. We know what God has then done, don't we? We know that God has unpacked that beautiful covenant of grace through a series of other covenants throughout Scripture, right? You know, promises and covenants with with, with Moses and David into the new covenant. This overarching covenant of grace, we know about this. And I ask you, what is the promise that lies really at the center of that covenant of grace? What does God say to Abraham's spiritual line? You will be my people, and I will be your God. In that God promises to be merciful to those who look to him in faith. And it's beautiful. And in a congregation like ours, we cherish that. We love it. And then we realize what Paul's saying here. At one stage, apart from grace, we stood outside of that. We stood away from that promise was not upon us. At one stage, Christian Fred, you stood outside of God's plan salvation. And then fourth, if you're with me, and if you look at it, you see that we are absent, absent of hope. And I wonder if you would do the work for me at this point. If you look at what Paul says here in verse 12, what does he go on to say? He begins to show the consequence of this. Would you agree with that, the upshot of it? What does he say? He says that we were having no hope. We had no hope. And this is the work that I want you to do. I want you to consider biblically what that reminds you of, that phrase. You scan scripture and that idea there. Paul saying, you know, outside, you had no hope. Is it not the case that the reminds you of what Harrison preached on a number of weeks, a number of months ago in First Thessalonians chapter 4? Do you remember this? Do you know that God says to us, it's okay to grieve? Maybe we need to hear that. But it's okay to grieve as a Christian. But what is the prohibition that God gives? That we are not to grieve as those who have no hope. And then 
think about this in the context of our society today. And what was the case? Even two weeks ago, a fortnight ago, our society thought it had hope, didn't it? Our society, apart from Christ Jesus, they thought they stored up money. They put their hope in brick and mortar. They looked ahead with such optimism. But what is the reality? Outside of Christ, what is the reality? Nothing. Like outside of Christ, nothing but condemnation. Outside of Christ, nothing to rest in. Nothing for security. No grounds for optimism. Outside of Christ, what is Paul saying? People are hopeless outside of a work of God's grace. And then maybe if you do like jigsaws, and I have to confess that I don't, but if you do like jigsaws, I'm guessing there's a certain joy and satisfaction to put in the last piece in the jigsaw, is there, if you like them? Maybe not here, because the last piece of the jigsaw, this portrait, this picture of what we once were, is that we were atheistic. And maybe you think I'm guilty of doing, again, what ministers love to do, and to sort of worshipping at the altar of alliteration there. But since the rest of them are A's, maybe you think I'm trying to shoehorn this atheistic, I'm trying to shoehorn an extra A in here. I assure you I am not doing that. I want you to understand that what Paul says next is where we get the word atheist. So have a look at this. What does Paul say in verse 12? He says, remember what you once were. You were, look at those words, you were without God in the world. If you're a Christian, does that not sum up our state apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and outside of a work of grace? And do you not see how pitiful it is outside of a work of grace? Though we were made in the image of God, and though we were made for relationship with God, what's the purpose of life? We're made for relationship with God. Those, though those things were true, apart from grace, we knew not our God. We knew not our creator. And it wasn't just walking in isolation and walking alone on this earth, was it? Not at all. We were at enmity with God. We were in hostility and enemy terms with the almighty God. And when you put all of these pieces of the jigsaw together, away from Jesus, apart from the church, aliens to promise, absent of hope, atheistic, no wonder Paul says to the people of God, remember it. Understand it, focus on it, recall what you once were, because surely it is for the people of God. We cherish Christ all the more, don't we? We cherish the grace of the gospel all the more when we remember just what we have been saved from. So we are to recall our past deprivation. Now secondly, and much more briefly, uh, we are also here pointed to, told to realize our present privilege, to realize our present privilege. Have we all seen films, all read books, all seen films where a crowd of people have been amazed by uh, beauty? We've seen that sort of idea in the past, a crowd that's been amazed by beauty. Let's say we were all watching a big Hollywood blockbuster, or maybe it has to be a period drama, this would never happen. You would not find me there watching a period drama. Um, but let's say we're watching a period drama. And it's that scene in a period drama, you know the, the scene where posh, it's a ballroom, and a black tie sort of event, and it's very posh. 
uh, aristocracy are there, and they're all having the cheese and wine and nibbles, and they're all having a nice little chat together, mingling around in a room. My idea of an absolute nightmare. Total room of misery. What happens? At that point, you know the, the idea that the butler, he announces to the room the next guest. You know that sort of idea? So the, the butler there, he, he opens the door and he ushers into the room the lead actress. And you can imagine it, can you? Like, there she is at the top of the stairs in her flowing ball gown. And what happens? The silence falls in the room. Everyone just looks up to the top of the stairs, this lead actress. The butler's ushered her in. There she is in her beauty. Now you see the butler... I think that there is the role the Apostle Paul plays as we move on in Ephesians chapter 2. Do you see what I mean? Like into this room of utter misery, this nightmare spiritual room in Ephesians 2. Do you know what Paul does? All of a sudden he announces to that room, he makes ushers in the good news, he ushers in the beauty of what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I do think it's worth you and I noticing this structure just momentarily here. Like I've established, and I'm hoping that we all know the previous section in Ephesians 2. Can I ask you, what is it famous for? If you look, if I just look at the beginning of verse 4, Ephesians 2 verse 4, look at the beginning of it. You know what it's famous for, that section, don't you? Those two words. Do you see it, that adversative conjunction there? Like Paul paints this picture. It's misery, dead in trespasses and sins. And then what does he come in, come in with? Those two words, but God. Those famous two words, but God. Well, I wonder, do you see that Paul is doing something very similar to that in our section? See, he's painted for us this picture of our spiritual poverty, our deprivation apart from Christ. Now, look at verse 13. Look at the beginning of verse 13. Look what he does. In comes with another adversative conjunction. He says, but now. Like he says to you, Christian friends, see that picture, that jigsaw of misery, of condemnation? That's not where you are. That's not your present situation. Now, I I think that it always does us good as Christians, not just to do what we did in our first point, to consider what we once were, but it always does us good, especially in a time like this, that if we are a Christian, to consider where we are right now, to consider our present spiritual standing before God. That always does us good as a Christian, to remember where we are before God. But as we do that right now, you have to understand that there is a danger before us. And so let me direct you to verse 13, and let's read it. Look at verse 13. Now, what did he say? He says, you were, you were away from Christ. And then he said, but now in Christ Jesus. Now, now, please pay attention to that phrase. You who were once far off have been brought near. Now, let me try and spell out the danger here. You see the idea of those who were far off? That's the way that the Bible frequently employs to talk about Gentiles, isn't it? You can see that. 
The Gentiles are people who are far off. So it's not geographically far off, but you can imagine reading scripture that the Gentiles are far off and far off. Spiritually, Acts 2 is one example. Peter says, doesn't he? This promise is for you, for your children, and those who are far off. Everyone with me? So the Gentiles are those who are far off. Now, sometimes in the Bible, Isaiah 58 is one example. Sometimes in the Bible, God makes a promise that some of those who are far off are going to be brought near. Everyone with me? So sometimes we hear that in Scripture. Similar to this, isn't it? So Isaiah 58, some of those who are far off the Gentiles, some of those are going to be brought near. Now, here's the danger. Here's the problem. So many commentators understand it like this. As to what God is promising is he's going to bring some Gentiles near to the people of Israel. You can understand, surely, that Jewish commentators believe that. That as though that promise in Isaiah 58 is that some Gentiles are going to be made into proselytes for, for, for Israel. They're going to become adopted people of Israel. And I wonder, and I really do hope, that you see that that is at best a partial understanding. Let me ask you some questions. What is the true beauty that has been ushered before you in Ephesians chapter 2? More precisely, to whom, Christian friend, have you been brought by the grace of the gospel in Christ Jesus? You see, don't you? The wonder of the gospel. The amazing, marvelous thing about the gospel is not just that we have been brought into an intimate relationship with one another. Friend, Christian friend, you've been brought by the gospel to God. You've been brought by the gospel into an intimate fellowship with the maker of heavens and earth. And I stand before you and I long for you to cherish that. Especially this morning, if you're going through a really hard time as a Christian, that we talk, don't we, about dry seasons in certain parts of the world? That can happen spiritually, can't it? Is that where you are just now? Is it that the joy of your salvation is a forgotten thing in your life? Is it the case that this coronavirus, this COVID-19, has just bred nothing but anxiety and worry in your life? Is it the case that right now, to you, God seems so distant, so remote, do you not hear God speak to you in Ephesians chapter 2? Nothing could be further from the truth. Don't you see the movement of the gospel? Don't you see how you have been transported? You were in condemnation. You were away. You were apart. And now you have been brought near to God, not just proximity, but access. Christian friend, as I speak to you now, you can speak to God at any place, in any time. Don't you see it? We were in a state of misery, and by grace, God has brought us near to him for relationship, for fellowship, and out of his immeasurable love for you. And then thirdly, and very briefly, lastly, we are prompted, some of us in this room, we are prompted to respond to our only hope. I wonder if you would agree with your minister that these are some of the greatest words that have ever been written, ever penned. Do you think you're going to Ephesians 2? That's as good as it gets, right? I mean, the stark contrast that is laid before you, Christian friend, like Paul is telling you, you have been taken from death 
into life. You've been taken from darkness into light. It's beautiful, right? It's an incredible section of Scripture. If you agree with that, you probably agree with me that there is one outstanding question that remains. The question surely is, how can that happen? How can sinners who are far off and distant, separated, how can we be brought to a God who is holy and does not and cannot tolerate sin? I mean, it seems an impossibility that people like you and people like me could be brought near to a thrice holy God. How does that happen? Well, I think we should notice, I guess, that this is entirely a work of God and God alone. Did you notice in verse 13 that the language there is exclusively passive language? So passive. Like, how do we get near God? Do we achieve nearness to God? Do we work our way towards God? Do we travel towards God? What does he say? You have been brought. You have been taken into nearness with God. This is not something we can bring about ourselves. This radical spiritual change is exclusively a work of God alone. We have to. We have to set that forth. But we still ask, Lord, how have you done it? How have you brought a wretch like me near to you, so glorious and great? And you know what I'm going to say, don't you? As we go back, in a sense, to the beginning of the service, I ask you, what is it that the end of verse 13 makes so abundantly clear? Do your eyes not go to it? Will you not read it? We are told that we can only ever be brought to God in and through the spilt blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see where Paul brings you this morning, don't you? You're brought to the cross where we hear the Romans mock and ridicule our Lord, where we hear the women wail. We feel the coldness and the darkness of Golgotha because the only vehicle of spiritual life and spiritual change is that sacrificial death of the Lord Christ, that sin-bearing, atoning work at Calvary. And I wonder, look, if you are a Christian, do you not see in Ephesians 2 more of the depths of what Christ endured and endured for you? Because if I was to ask you afterwards how you would summarize those five pieces of the jigsaw, what would you say back to me? Like, think about it. Are they not about alienation and isolation? Away from Christ, apart from the church, aliens to promise, absence. Do you see? And is that not what the Lord Jesus Christ has endured infinitely for you and to save you out of love for you? Think of it. You could say to me, Christ Jesus was separated from the city of God, wasn't he? He was kicked out of Jerusalem. Like that lamb, a scapegoat rather, in Leviticus, Jesus Christ kicked out of the camp for you. And then you could say to me, yeah, but you could add to that. Jesus Christ was excluded and separated even from his own people. Like for you despised, the Son of God rejected, made to be a far-off one in his death. But if you were to say to me, those things I would say back to you, but it gets worse. And there is a more dreadful reality in the cross of Christ. And surely it is this, that for the Lord Jesus Christ there at Golgotha, the words of verse 12 came true, that the Lord Jesus Christ became without God in this world on that cross. 
that though, of course, there was no schism in the Trinity, that to save you from your sin, the Lord Jesus Christ knew a true and proper forsakenness from the Father he loves so dear, a forsakenness from God for you. And so maybe I have to end speaking to you if you're not a Christian in the room. And maybe you, maybe it's so predictable what I'm going to say, is it? Or hear it nonetheless. That these five pieces of the jigsaw are not what you once were. Those five pieces of the jigsaw, they are what you are right now. And is that not a fearful thought? As we think about an outbreak of a potentially bleep virus, to consider that as you sit in this church today, you are away from Jesus, apart from the church, aliens to promise, absent of hope, and to all intents and purposes, atheistic. It's a dreadful thought, but it doesn't need to end there. If you will only come to faith in Christ Jesus, if only you rest in him, repentance and belief, then this very day the grace of God will transfer you into near some relationship with him. So I end with a predictable promise. Friends, if you're not a Christian, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood. They lose all of their guilt. They lose all of their guilty stains. Will you not this morning come to that fountain, wash and be clean? Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. We praise you, O God, that there is shelter beneath your wings. Well, we thank you that there is security under the shadow of the Almighty God. We thank you that you have done all that is necessary to ensure that your people are eternally secure and safe in Jesus. And we marvel as we read Ephesians because we see the cost that you have borne to save people like us. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you. In our Savior's name, amen.